on the podcast today, BC NDP leadership hopeful Anjalia Paterai finds her campaign shrouded in controversy. Hamish Telford breaks it down for us. And there are a lot of conversations in BC around helping people with substance abuse with safe supply and injection sites. But we took a different angle on the show and talked to an expert on how to prevent drug use before it starts by having conversations with kids. But first, my guest is the new MLA-elect for South Surrey, Eleanor Sturko. She'll be the education critic for the BC Liberal Caucus. Let's see how she answered the tough questions. Eleanor Sturko is the MLA-elect for Surrey South, and she's taking on the role of education critic for the BC Liberal Caucus. Her mandate is to hold the NDP government to account for their commitments to education in BC. Sounds like a role that a lot of us would like to have. Eleanor, good morning. Good morning, Raji. It's great of you to join us so early on a Sunday morning. I want to start kind of broadly. So what is your assessment of BC education? Just at a glance, how well do you think our public education system rates? Oh, gosh. Well, I have kids here in uh, School District 36. All three of my kids go to school here in Surrey South. I think that, you know, overall, our kids are doing well in schools. But, you know, I would say that some of the recent pressures that are being felt all over the province, um, including inflation shortfalls, are actually having an impact on our education system. And I want to be able to raise some of those concerns that have already been communicated to me from various school districts so that we can um, get a hold of the situation before it actually causes any significant damage. And your kids, are they in the public school system or private? They're in public school. They've been in public school the whole time. Okay. And as you look to when you were a kid and you compare to what your kids are going through with District 36 in South Surrey, um, what do you think has changed that people might not be aware of that we need to be paying attention to in the education system over the years? Well, schools are a lot bigger, I have to say, like, especially here in Surrey with the influx of so many people, I think, the estimates where we grow by nearly a thousand people a month in Surrey. So, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on the education system. Um, You know, as we've learned more, I think, uh, about the importance of supporting youth and children and about um, the benefits of having, for example, um, education assistance in the classroom and expanding programs that help people with disabilities and children with learning disabilities. I think that there are a lot of pressures on the education system um, that we need to make sure are well-funded so that all children um, have an opportunity to reach their full potential. And I'm getting a lot of emails to ask you about health measures in schools this fall. Are you satisfied with what the BCNDP has laid out for safety given COVID-19 this fall? Well, you know, I plan on making some appointments uh, probably this week to talk with, uh, for example, BC Teachers Federation, talk with other educators, talk with people working in the school districts, because I want to find out how they're feeling about it. I actually have been quite comfortable in terms of my own uh, family with uh, masking, hand washing measures, um, you know, doing the distance between desks and making sure, like, for example, two of my kids are twins. And so during the pandemic, our kids were kept in the same classroom to minimize sort of 
um, you know, the contact when they were in cohorts. So I think some of the measures that have been done have been good. But of course, you know, it's about listening to what's happening in the classroom. I don't have a front seat view to that, even despite having kids in uh, school. And so I want to talk with um, teachers. I want to talk with uh, all the education system to see how they're doing and what their assessment is of the situation. And are you satisfied with air filtration in BC classrooms and where the province has left that? Well, you know, one of the things that's really concerning, and I know a lot of parents share this concern, is the number of portables that we continue to have in the education system. We were promised here in Surrey South that we would have less portables, which actually uh, have a completely different air system. A lot of them are older. Um, Children have to go outside if they need to use the washroom or have to travel outside if they want to use uh, the library or gymnasium. So, I mean, in Surrey alone, we actually, instead of decreasing, as was promised by the NDP, we've actually increased by over 100. So, and with some of those aging portables, you know, there are different types of concerns that can come along with that. But again, I think I need to, I, you know, I haven't even been sworn in yet, but there's a lot of work for me to do because I do want to hear parents' concerns. I want to hear from educators and see um, if there's more that does need to be done to make sure that our children are safe in the classroom. Some listeners are suggesting that the BC liberal relationship with teachers needs to be repaired or improved. How would you go about that? Yeah, I would agree. You know, um, I was doing a lot of background reading and, and looking at our historic relationship with teachers, and I do agree. I think it needs to be repaired. Part of that is, from my point of view, I need to understand um, past decision-making that was done by our BC Liberal government, government, but I do want to reach out to the BC Teachers Federation. I want to make sure that we um, begin a brand-new relationship so that, um, you know, we repair the trust that perhaps hasn't been there as a result of um, past bargaining, and I want to make sure that we move forward in a positive way. Um, I really do have the best interest of students and their families and teachers and educators in mind when I take on this role. I, I see a great importance, even in terms of some of the social um, issues that we're facing in our province. We need to begin at an early age um, with our support for youth and children so that we can, for example, support kids so that we don't have another generation of people succumbing to the opioid crisis, for example. So I want to make sure that we build a strong uh, and trusting relationship between uh, teachers and BC Liberal uh, opposition because we have so much work that we need to do to support youth in the province. Eleanor, I'm glad you mentioned the opioid crisis because the number of deaths uh, that we heard from the coroner's report for July was just staggering with almost 200 people having lost their lives to the overdose crisis. Um, your background is in policing. What do you feel may, about that makes you a good fit to be the education critic? Well, you know, part of it is having worked in the schools, you know, in my role as a police officer, but also, you know, I've been invited in as a speaker many different times just to talk about, um, you know, growing up and, you know, basically navigating school myself as a youth and, and then finding my way into adulthood. And I think, you know, um, knowing that a lot of the issues that individuals have experienced with trauma in their lives, um, with feeling disaffiliated from family or not having a sense of belonging can contribute to people looking uh, to either self-medicate with either drugs or alcohol or to, um, you know, maybe associate with people involved in a criminal lifestyle. And I think that it's important that, 
you know, we support the education system with things like uh, counselors for schools, with education assistance, with programs, with things like the wraparound programs that are providing meals and um, school supplies to children that um, may not otherwise be able to afford those things. Those are all important things that we can do in our community to help avoid some of the social issues or to at least support people as they're growing up. And, you know, we, we can't ever sort of downplay the connection between growing up and being well supported and then being successful later in life. And I think, you know, um, having seen sometimes some of the youth that I have um, worked with over the years who struggled in school, struggled with their support systems um, outside of the school, I think that, and then seeing them, you know, become involved in a gang lifestyle or with crime or suffer from addictions is actually giving me a lot of incentive to make sure that we're looking at the supports that are in place and making sure that kids get what they need to have a successful, um, you know, future. Okay, Elnar, we'll have to leave it there. A lot of work ahead for you. We'll be watching it all very closely. Yes, thanks. I'm very excited about this role. Thanks again for your time. Okay, take care. The recent coroner's report shows that the number of deaths in B.C. due to toxic drugs approaches 200 people in the month of July alone. The numbers are staggering. And while a lot of attention has been paid to how to help people who struggle with substance abuse, today on the show, we're going to talk about a different angle. That's how to prevent that drug use in the first place with young people through conversation. Joining us on the line now is adolescent medical expert, Dr. Dolly Clock. Good morning, Dolly. Good morning, Rosie. Thanks for having me on. Oh, we're so pleased that you came on to chat about this very important topic with us. Let's get right into it. What should parents be saying to kids about drugs and when should they be having those conversations? Okay, great question. And I just want to acknowledge right off the bat that this is an anxiety-provoking topic for parents seeing those kinds of headlines. Um, But this is really important subject matter to be covering with kids of all ages. Um, And so number one is parents educating themselves, recognizing it's uncomfortable, and sort of figuring out at a time when they're in a calm state to talk with their kids. Um, And so when we're talking about young children, even you can start talking about drugs with kids when they're in preschool and elementary school just by using teachable moments. Maybe you see someone smoking or vaping while you're walking down the street. And so you can bring that up and just keep it simple and think about, you know, health and basic facts you want to you want to get across. And even you can start modeling for kids, maybe to get a prescription from a physician um, for an ear infection or something. So you can say to them, let's look at the bottle. Let's make sure it has your name on it. It's the right medicine. And let's follow the instructions. So they're really basic, easy things to model starting at an early age. And then when you're moving into later elementary school, middle school, use teachable moments. There will be those headlines that you see um, in the media. As kids get older, there will be teachable moments from their actual lives. So meeting kids with curiosity, um, helping them fill in the gaps. And then as we're talking about high schoolers, you know, these conversations get more and more advanced. Um, And so I think in general, meeting them with curiosity is key. And our goal should be to become askable and approachable so that if they do have questions or if they find themselves in a situation where they feel uncertain or unsafe, then they know they can turn to us as parents and we'll be there for them. 
Yeah, I love what you say there about starting as young as preschool and elementary school. And I know some people will hear that and go, what? No, that's that's far too early. But um, my own kids are, are those ages. They're four and six years old. And you betcha, I've talked to them about drugs. I've talked to them about how a doctor has prescribed drugs. And then there's these other kind of drugs and, and had those conversations with them. And maybe it's less scary to them because I've started early. Absolutely. I think that's the idea is to, you know, the earlier you start, the, the more natural those conversations begin. But at the same time, I want to acknowledge there may be parents listening who are parents of teens and they've never had a conversation and it's never too late to start these conversations. So seeing headlines, I mean, I would love it if we could talk a little bit about these deaths and, and fentanyl and what's beyond, behind it, because I'm finding myself increasingly talking with teens and, and parents about this and just trying to educate them on the basics so that they can stay safe. Sure, yeah. I, I think some parents dread these conversations because they're hoping that their kid's too young to be exposed so that you know they'll come to mom and dad whenever it does become an issue. So why is it important for trusted adults to be the ones to initiate these conversations with teens and tweens? Well, tweens and teens, you know, the more that they can get the facts and hear those facts from trusted individuals like their parents and their teachers, the more likely it is that they will make healthy choices. All teens, you know, sometimes make impulsive, feel-good choices. These things happen, but the more we can do to educate them, the better. Um, And so, you know, what I'm encountering, and I'm based in Los Angeles, is, you know, when we're talking about these drug deaths, this is what everyone's hearing in your country and mine, and this is largely being driven by fentanyl, um, which is finding its way into the illicit drug supply. And oftentimes when I'm hearing about teens who have died or gotten sick, it's many times they've been taking pills that they think are something else. They think they're taking a Percocet or a Xanax or an Adderall, but not knowing that what's in the drug supply currently are fake pills and that the that according to the DEA, two out of every five fake pills have a potentially lethal dose of fentanyl. So it's important for them to to know that. It's important for them to know that if they're getting pills or drugs off the street or online that they've connected with a dealer or even from a maybe the dealer might be another high school student, right? To, to just know the risk that's there. And doctor, what about when parents say and do the right things? They're educating their kids as much as they can. They're having these conversations and still the kids being kids remain curious. They think that they're invincible and that the parents are overreacting. Then what? They do. And this is, I mean, this is something that happens. So I think what we need to do, again, is use those teachable moments. Sometimes, um, you know, kids get into trouble in ways that might affect their health. And hopefully, you know, if they they survive it, there's more important conversations to have. Um, having some boundaries around alcohol and substance use um, that really revolve around safety, knowing where your kids are, knowing, um, you know, conversations about never driving or getting into a car with someone else who's been using any kind of substance. Um, kids who have peers who, who use substances are more likely to use substances. So, so get to know your kids' friends. And, and, you know, the more that we can sort of 
come at them with calm and curiosity and, and be a part of their lives, connect with them on other subjects that have nothing to do with the scary stuff, right? Just being a part of their lives, showing interest in their interests, showing interest in their friends. The more you do that, the more they'll let you into their lives, and hopefully we can have more of these conversations. That's such a good point. I'm also curious about what role you think teachers and schools should be playing when it comes to harm prevention from drugs. I think they should be playing a critical role. These are great conversations to be having in all of our schools. I'm currently talking with some schools about, you know, making sure they have Narcan, which is the reversal agent for for drugs like fentanyl, having that on campus to make sure that if there were, God forbid, you know, an event at school that they they can call 911 and 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 help in the meantime with a potentially life-saving medication. Um we ha- we must have these conversations. This is not a you know this is not a question. It's 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 absolutely a must. And there also seems to be a movement of abstaining from booze because of the recent data on alcohol's harmful effects. And you see that amongst adults who are voluntarily going alcohol free. What's your opinion on teaching kids just abstinence from harmful substances altogether? I think that just like with sex education, abstinence should be part of the conversation. I don't think that that, that should be the, the only emphasis because it's just I don't find that that's realistic and you sort of lose your credibility as an as a educator if, if that's the only thing you're talking about. So, again, the more we can educate kids to understand about all different substances, what the potential risks are both in the short term and with long-term use, risks of addiction, all of that, um, the, the more likely they will to, to, make, to make safer choices. Okay. We're going to have to leave it there, Dolly, but thank you so much for giving us your time today. Thank you for having me. Have a wonderful day. Well, some investigations now swirl around the NDP leadership campaign for Anjali Apatarai. The party and Elections BC are investigating an environmental group's involvement in the campaign. Here to break it down for us is Hamish Telford, a poli-sci prof at University of Fraser Valley. Hi, Hamish. Good morning, Raji. Okay, now this is a kind of complicated story. So Dogwood, the environmental group in question, is in hot water for trying to recruit voters for Anjali Apatari's campaign. Can you help us understand the contentious part of this? Sure. Well, campaigns are regulated by Elections BC and by parties, but in this case, Elections BC. And there's very strict financing rules about how much people and organizations can donate to to candidates. Um, and the limits, are, I, I think it's about $1,500, $1,600. So you could write a check for that, or you could make what's called an in-kind contribution for that amount. So the allegation here is that Dogwood is effectively working on Apodrize, uh campaign uh, and that they are contributing more um, through these efforts than the, than the maximum allowable $1,500 or, or whatever the exact figure is. Now, uh, Dogwood, for its part, says, no, we're not doing anything wrong. We checked with Elections BC. We are just communicating with our members about this opportunity that exists. Uh, and we're not working on her campaign, nor we are endorsing endorsing her as a candidate. So um, Elections BC has to sort out which of these allegations is correct. 
Okay, so Dogwood's accused of effectively donating to a patterized campaign by using its resources, uh, not necessarily by making a monetary donation, but to try to encourage people to sign up for the NDP memberships and then vote in the race. So they could be accused of violating rules around third-party contributions, is that correct? That's right. And this is the same sort of thing that got Patrick Brown in trouble with the Conservative Party during his leadership campaign. He had a volunteer on his campaign, evidently, who was being paid by another uh, entity, and that was deemed to be a campaign contribution. Okay, so Dogwood admits that they sent emails to their own membership, but are they not allowed to communicate to their own membership? They are, and and they say um, that they checked with Elections BC about what they were allowed to do and not do uh, in relation to this this campaign, uh, and they say that they they are following the guidelines that they received. Yeah, I did come across that. Well, then, what aspect of their help would be the the bit that's contentious? Which aspect of that crossed the line? That. That it's uh, that they are in effect working for her. Yeah. That they are that they're they're not just sort of communicating, right? If they were just sort of communicating opportunities, they're you know they're two candidates in the race. True, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> they're not directing anyone to the other candidate. Um, their 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 messaging to their own members is is very skewed here. Okay, so then what would have been allowed? Would they have been allowed to do? Like, where should they have stopped? I can't really say. Um, I, I can't. I'm not a lawyer here. I can't decide uh, for myself whether they've crossed the line or not. Um, and and I, I, I'm not sure that anyone can. We're just really going to have to wait for elections. BC's ruling on this one. Yeah, I did come across uh, Kai Nagata from Dogwood saying that they're, they believe they're doing everything uh, totally within the rules. But in your view, do you think the candidates themselves, uh, I know you can't speak for Anjali Patarai, but do you think in general that the candidates are aware of political contribution rules? Uh, yes and no. Um, you know, she she has jumped into this race um, relatively late. She's she's not been involved in elected politics, so it's a steep learning curve. And uh, I, I wouldn't imagine that that she or any other candidate has learned all of the rules masterfully. But this is why you need to hire. Uh, lawyers and others on your campaign who do have a detailed knowledge of these rules and to ensure that the campaign uh, follows them. Can, you know, the candidate themselves have a lot of other things to do sure. uh, in terms of campaigning and getting their message out. And, you know, I would say that there's nothing sort of necessarily unusual here. The name of the game in leadership races in Canada is to sign up as many members as you can. And it's a frantic sort of uh, process. We saw in the federal conservative race, Pierre Polyev signed up hundreds of thousands of members and crushed his opponents. And uh, in a short race like this, it's all very frantic. And you work your networks as best you can. And uh, in most campaigns, there have always been allegations of wrongdoing. In this case, we've got a couple of, of more serious allegations, or at least one serious one, the involvement of Dogwood. 
Yes, you're you're right. They're frantically trying to work their network as best they can. Uh, David Eby would be doing the same in uh, to whatever extent he could. But Kevin Falcon has come out saying, uh, you've probably caught all this, that it's uh, weighted unfairly to criticize Anjalia Paterai to basically uh, help boy David a- Eby to the top. What do you think of all that? Well, of course, Kevin Falcon is not a neutral or objective observer here, right? He's trying to stir the pot. Um, But I would say the the NDP have a dilemma on their hands. There have been allegations of wrongdoing here, in some cases, serious wrongdoing. And and if if that has been if that is proven, then the NDP is going to have to decide what to do about it. And, and I imagine they could Im- impose a range of, of sanctions on Apadurai. Um We saw, of course, the federal conservatives kicked out uh, Patrick Brown from their race during the summer, and, and the Conservative Party received a certain amount of blowback for doing that. I think the optics here of kicking Angelia Apadurai out of this race would, would look terrible. We have an establishment candidate, a party insider, a tall white man um, and an outsider candidate, a young woman of color. And if they kicked her out, uh, I think that that would uh, be very upsetting to a lot of NDP supporters. The optics of it are just all wrong. And if that doesn't end up happening, how does the NDP recuperate its reputation? Well, it's it's going to be difficult to recuperate its its reputation, and, and, and it also gets David Eby off to a terrible start. It tarnishes his victory um, if if the only uh, other candidate is is kicked out of the race, and he then sort of goes on to to be acclaimed. There will always be that question mark or asterisk um, beside his victory here, and and gets him off to a terrible start. Leadership races within parties are so hard for this reason that you just lay out because they seek to discredit uh, a member of the party. And then what happens if that part, that member ends up winning uh, or losing? It just kind of ends up uh, looking bad for everyone. So what would be the best tactic forward for the NDP in treating this so that regardless of the outcome, they look okay? Well, uh, depending on what um, is finally determined, both by the party investigation and elections BC, um, there may be nothing, right? She may have been found not to have done anything wrong, but assuming that uh, wrongdoing is found, especially in the case of elections BC, I think that... uh, um, uh, the party is going to have to think very quick, carefully about what sort of sanctions they impose and not go to the last resort sanction immediately and throw her out. They could they could just, just bar some of the people that she signed up, saying those are not properly signed up members. They could find her campaign. I think there are a range of options here that the party could consider. All right, Hamish. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time today. You're most welcome. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.